0: 10,000 is an industry, Bitcoin at 100,000 is a world power, and Bitcoin at a million is a global government. It's just not the one that anybody expected. It's funny to put it that way. A lot of people have thought about a global government in different ways. And essentially, there's been two factions, those people who are pro-freedom and don't want a global government, and those people who are, let's say, pro-order or pro-state who do want a global government but Bitcoin at a million is like a pro-freedom global government, which seems like a paradoxical thing that neither group really understands.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nidig and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Monday, September 6th. And that means it's Labor Day. Because it's Labor Day, we're doing a rerun of an interview that I did that was extremely popular and is one of the interviews that I have the most people still come ask me about to this day. Unsurprisingly, it's an interview with Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji is an angel investor, an entrepreneur. He's the former CTO of Coinbase, a former general partner of Andreessen and Horowitz. And mostly people just know him for his incredibly expansive, synthesizing brain and perspective. Balaji is the type of guy who I love to talk with about how different things intersect, not just about trends, but about the broad patterns of history that shape where we've been, where we are, and where we might be going. In this conversation, we talk about networks and how they take a power role once reserved for God and the state. We talk about why pre internet institutions will not survive the internet. We talk about one of his most intriguing concepts, woke capital versus communist capital versus crypto capital. And we talk about why Bitcoin at a million dollars is a global government. I'm thrilled to present this rerun of my conversation with Balaji Srinivasan. All right, Balaji, welcome to The Breakdown. It's really exciting to have you here. Uh, Good to be here. So I'm really excited for this conversation. I think, you know, a lot of what I am at root interested in with this show and exploring on the show is how the world is changing, and in particular, how power is shifting. And I think that in today's world, that is a conversation that is inherently uh, in part about technology, perhaps primarily about technology. But we find ourselves in this strange moment. And I guess my first question to kick this off is, how did America fall out of love with technology?
0: There's a Great site called like, I think it's WTF happened in 1971. Um, I'm not sure the exact URL, but if you Google that, you should come across it, which fingers that exact moment right around, right after the moon landing. It feels like, you know, that was the mission accomplished moment for the general public's excitement about technology. And what's interesting about it is, so after that, it's not like technology didn't happen, but the personal computer sort of personalized the ability for individuals to pursue technology. Technology is no longer a public sector thing. And a really, a, an interesting way of thinking about it is it repersonalized the pursuit of technology because, you know, you could, you could kind of say that the grand era of American tech roughly is, you know, rather I should say state tech is roughly from like 1933 to 1969, you know, like Hoover Dam to you know, including the Manhattan Project in the middle to the moon landing, right? That was the period where, you know, centralized technology, technologies that favored centralization, mass media, mass production, those led to the creation of these gigantic centralized states, you know, the USA, the USSR, the PRC. And as you go forward and backward in time from 1950, you get more decentralized in both directions, you know, if you could talk about 1950, you're roughly talking about one telephone company and two superpowers and three television stations. You know, you have at and and you have the U.S. and the USSR and you have ABC, NBC and CBS and you have this extremely centralized world in many ways. There's not much choice and you don't just get there by accident. What that means is an enormous destruction of diversity, intellectual diversity, ideological diversity, you know, an enormous homogenization process. As you go into 1950, where all these other schools of thought, all of these other, you know, newspapers and other, you know, media sources, information sources, all just shut down in favor of, you know, this, this sort of 1950s environment. So if you go backwards in time and forwards in time, backwards in time, of course, you start getting, you know, to the Wright brothers who could do, uh, you know, a, a, an airplane I mean, with, with bicycles, like if you think about it, by the way, that, that technology still works. You could go and build an airplane in your garage today. You could do that. It would just be illegal to do it, <laughs> but you could <laughs> like physically, if the Wright brothers could do it like more than a hundred years ago with, you know, didn't have Amazon, didn't have, you know, like really light composite materials or anything like that. It is physically possible to fly with stuff in your garage, Okay, which is kind of crazy to think about, but it's absolutely true. It's dangerous, sure, but it's it's totally doable. And um, you know, those plans are on the internet; everything is there. It's just that it's not thought of as something you can do. You go further back in time, and of course, there's individual inventors doing all kinds of stuff. And you know, you get to the Wild West, you get to the era of private banking in the U.S., and you go far enough back in time, and you know you have pseudonymous people starting a new country like that's the Federalist papers and that's Publius and, and whatnot right all the all the founding fathers who published uh, under pseudonyms and argued with each other about the philosophy and started a new country and so what happened was uh, as you go into nineteen fifty you have this huge centralization process and you exit nineteen fifty and you start decentralizing and you have, you know, cable television and you have the internet and then suddenly you have all the blogs, then you have Twitter and you have a thousand million websites all around the world. Uh, and we're, you know, that, that's just going to continue. Like, uh, there's a huge backlash against it, attempt to re-centralize, but I think in the fullness of time, the, this technology is just fundamentally decentralized because everybody has this personal computer. What we haven't yet done is use that to sort of unlock our brains to innovate in the physical world. And, um, one things that happened is first technology wasn't as necessary to the U S because it got too strong by the seventies. You know, the U S really, you know, it took another 20 years to win the cold war. It wasn't something that they were totally content and fat and happy until maybe the early nineties. But, you know, there's that saying that necessity is the mother of invention, you know, and um, in the absence of that stressor, in the absence of that pressure, um, the U.S. didn't have to invent, especially it didn't have to innovate physically, number one. Number two is uh, it got into printing money. It got into, um, you know, things where it was all about political truths, right? There's a difference between political versus technical truths. I tweeted about this, you know, several months ago, but a political truth is something like, where's the presence of a border or who's the president or how much money does somebody have? And those are things that are fundamentally and really, entirely determined by the software in people's heads, in the sense that if you can push an update to that through media, push new software into people's heads, you can change the position of a border. Um, and you might think, well, don't you have a fight of wars? I mean, no, actually, you know, for example, South Sudan or East Timor. You know, if enough people agree, a border can be moved. If enough, of the right people agree, I should say. You know, so it's both quantity of distribution and very, even more importantly, quality of distribution, the nodes in the network that you can persuade with these arguments. So, you know, what that leads you to is a sort of postmodernism where everything is just a social construct. If with enough power, you can bend people's perception of reality. You can make people say the border was here, now it's there, that kind of thing, um, because it's all social construct. And that's true. For political truths, uh, technical truths though are like you know the diameter of the coronavirus you know under an electron microscope, or whether or not a, a uh, like this physics equation describes what is actually true, like Navier Stokes. That's that's a that's a physical truth, a technical truth, um, and so that's totally on the other side of things. You're talking about something which is true regardless of what humans think. And then you've got something like crypto, which is interesting, which starts using technical truths to constrain political truths. Um, normally, you can just make up who has what money. Well, you know, guess what? The Fed can hit a button and make it all happen. But now it's constrained. It's constrained via technology, via cryptography. So you start using technical truths to constrain political truths to a greater extent. So how to fall out of love with technology? Well, I think the, the US found it could print lots of money. It had fewer competitors. There's this process of re-decentralization where, you know, the the U.S. as the state was no longer the driver, but it was back to individuals. And that's all happening now. And, you know, we're, we're having a generation now that's born that doesn't even remember a time. You know, you can only see it in movies, right? A time when the U.S. government was actually competent. And, you know, the, the thing about this is... Um, there's all these myths that are told, but it's not necessarily good. It's, it's not something where uh, people are, um, it's not 100% good for this period where the U.S. government drove all technology and innovation because it's actually during that time that you had a lot of slowdown in some areas, You know, the great stagnation, as Thiel talks about. Um, why is it that with all this rise in science funding and federal funding, we ha- seem to have had a total fall off in physical innovation? One argument is it's being bottlenecking. It's mean it's basically meant that any innovation has to be de facto state approved at the grant making process um, at the in the sense of just a bureaucracy or a collective has to sign off on it. So individual initiative has been deadened, except in the area of personal computers and the tech sector, where an individual can just get started. The so called founder, you know, and so we're sort of fighting against that great stagnation through the mechanism of the personal computer, which was sort of a a place the state couldn't fully control. But um, I I think the short answer is why did it fall out of love? It didn't need technology seemingly to maintain power. Um, it, It centralized enough power that it couldn't see what it was missing. And it also meant that due to political truths being so important, people were selected for the top ends of media and politics that could just persuade other people as opposed to actually being able to understand true facts. It's Kind of a long answer, but I think that's I think that's a big part of it. basically, got fat and happy
1: so one of the things that uh, threads that I want to pick up on is in some ways part of the argument there is you have this period of of centralization of technology that allows states to consolidate power, but then technology starts to sow the seeds of the state's own irrelevance in some ways right and uh and it feels to me a little bit like. It, you know, that might be part of the moment that we're in where the the technology is advancing uh, in, in areas that have been the previous purview of the state entirely. And now there are credible alternatives and exit options that make people question what the role of the state should be at exactly the time the state is trying to reassert itself in some way. So that's something that I think, I mean, is that is that part of it?
0: Absolutely. And the thing is that, the more incompetent the state is, the more people build alternatives, the more the state feels threatened, the more it lashes out, the more alternatives get built. I think that's the cycle that we're in, in the West. Um, I think that it's very, now it didn't have to play out this way. It doesn't have to be this way. One of my macro frameworks, I think of, you know the network is the next Leviathan. And what I mean by that is in the 1800s, People really, you know, why didn't you steal? People really believed in God. God was, God was like a force in the world, which um, people really thought it existed. And they almost like a physical force. They, they really expected they were going to go to hell if they did X or Y or Z. So it was like a decentralized law, a decentralized judge, which would scare the crap out of people. And they would, they would obey in certain ways. And then by the late 1800s, once people, you know, didn't believe in God, um nietzsche you know wrote god is dead and really what he was saying was that enough educated elites didn't believe and he could see the writing on the wall um well now you needed a new force to make sure that people didn't steal and that was the state that was the boys in blue so by the 1900s why didn't you steal because the state would punish you what's the most powerful force in the world it's no longer god it's the u.s military Um, it is physical force that is delivered by uniformed officers of the state And now in the 2000s, um, you know, what is the most powerful force? Well, we have a new contender, a new Leviathan, not God, not the state, but the network. Why don't you steal? Because the network won't let you either you're mobbed on social media, or you don't have the um, password to the cryptocurrency network. And that's a genuine alternative to God or the state in the sense of what is the most powerful force in the world. And um, it's, this is something that underpins so many conversations. Like it's a deep driver of things that people don't understand how deep a driver it is. For example, the difference between, let's say the technological progressive and the, you know, let's call call it the political progressive is that, you know, on a problem, like let's say, uh, you know, climate change, the technological progressive says, let's do fusion energy. And the political progressive says, "Um, let's go and, uh, you know, do do you know, uh, carbon taxes or, or stop people from doing X or Y or Z, subsidize this, ban this. On the topic of traffic fatalities, the technological progressive says, let's do self-driving cars and uh, you know, get, get people off the road that way um, or at least out of the driver's seat. And the political progressive says, um, let's you know ban cars from entering, let's ban this and that, let's make streets walkable and so on. And, you know, on the topic of COVID, the technological progressive says, let's do vaccines, let's do drugs. Um, and the political progressive says, let's do lockdowns, let's prevent people from doing this, mandate that. And, you know, the pattern there is it's not that there's that much disagreement necessarily on the problem. Sometimes there is. But, you know, in each of these cases, people are agreeing, you know, that on, on on let's say, climate or on... Um, the COVID or on, um, so you know, like traffic fatalities being bad, you know, these, at least traffic fatalities being bad, it's a relatively apolitical kind of thing. Um, it's
1: one of the few COVID, we have left,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, one of the few we have left. But, um, you know, the the point is, it's not that folks are disagreeing on that. Um, it is the, the mechanism of how to solve it is so fundamentally different. You know, the, the people of God are like the people of the South, you know, in, in the U.S., Um, and they'll go to thoughts and prayers stereotypically. The people of the Northeast are like the people of the state, and their go-to, they'll scoff and laugh at thoughts and prayers, and they'll say, well, we should pass a law, right? We should ban this. We should mandate that. We should forbid this. We should subsidize that. That actually does something because the state exists, god exists but gov does not or rather gov exists but god does not right and um so that's their logic but then you have the people of the network who say well actually that is illogic because you know these laws don't actually achieve what they're intended to achieve they're very high level and you just writing something down with the intent is not how it's actually enforced um you know it's not the idea it's the execution and so actually rather than thoughts and prayers or uh, pass law we should write some code we should start a company we should do it open source and you go from what would God do to what would the state do to what would I do through the network and um, that's a very different it's a third model and that's the people of the West okay and the fundamental thing is is about you know it, it, where do you resort to what is your first resort is your first resort to the state? Is the first thing you think about when solving a problem? Let's get a coalition. Let's go and basically acquire a piece of the state, you know, a piece of state power, and then with that hammer, we will hammer people into doing this and hammer people into doing that, and uh, and that'll solve it because there's bad people out there, and if only I had effectively guns, I could force people to do this or do that. And you know, here's the thing. Is though that's certainly not my first inclination. I recognize that there is some room for the use of, you know, like a competent state. You know, one of the reasons that the uh, the East has controlled COVID to a much greater extent than the West. I mean, like the Pacific Rim countries, uh, including, by the way, Australia and New Zealand, which have sort of imitated those Pacific Rim countries. So they aren't. um, It's not necessarily just uh, a a Euro thing or an Anglo thing. what what they've done is they've done immigration controls in an intelligent way. Their, their public sector is actually functional. Uh, and yes, there's things that are mandated and yes, there's things that are forbidden, but they're done by competent bureaucrats, competent technocrats. So I I, I want to clarify that I'm not against, you know, like the state in every respect. However, as, as the go-to um you know, these folks are sort of going to the state, the political progressives, without thinking about whether it actually works um, or whether it's it's functional. It's like pulling a lever and there's no nothing, nothing connected to on the other end. It gives you power, but doesn't give you results. Whereas the technological progressive is thinking, okay, when you say, how should I do something? How can I, you know, Uh, take responsibility for this problem by starting a company or doing a website or open source or even tweeting or whatever, It's it's an individual thing with individual responsibility. And then you very quickly realize it's hard to persuade people to do things. You know, money persuades, power compels. And while it's hard to persuade people, it's also more effective often. Um, if they're all persuaded to do it, rather than you get a piece of the state and you point a a gun at them. And in in a really interesting sense, the political progressive and technological progressive are both ambitious. The political progressive wants a piece of the state which gives them the power to tell people to do this and do that. And the technological progressive wants a piece of the network, whether it's a domain name or it's a piece of the crypto network. And uh, you know maybe you can build that into a Reddit or an Ethereum, right? You, you take your little your domain name, which is nothing, and it's it's like um, getting a piece of a homestead, a piece of land, and you build it up. And you, you know, now it goes from a piece of land to this gigantic farm with all these people on there, and you know, becomes a city, and so on. That's like what Ethereum became. That's what Reddit became. Went from literally a domain registration to this gigantic international community, and everybody's there of their own accord uh, and have opted in. You know, and so you persuade, but you persuade three hundred million people to do something. It's actually very, very impressive. So. My sympathies are certainly with technological progressives rather than political progressives because a lot of political progressives are technological conservatives. Um, And, uh, you know, again, like there's many things that I would agree with them on, like, you know, for example, that COVID is bad, but I think the mechanism, and I'm using it, by the way, in a very narrow sense of if you think of the state as the first resort on everything, as opposed to the network, your, your first resort is implicitly to use the gun. I think that's that's one of my macro frameworks, which helps uh, structure what is going to work and what isn't going to work. Um, what is the network approach to this, as opposed to the state approach, as opposed to the God approach? You know, so <laughs> nothing against that, but that's that's something where the God approach depends. It's a coordination mechanism, which depends on people believing in a deity. And you know the thing about our modern era is people only believe it if you can put numbers on it. What's really interesting about crypto is you can now put numbers on the strength of belief. A belief can be publicly traded. Okay, so you know the price of a coin is like a measure of the strength of belief. How many people are holding it versus not? The the, the strength of their belief that it's going to keep going up, that it's going to get strong, that and so on and so forth. And I think it's only a matter of time before that's applied to other kinds of social movements where you, know, you could have essentially a publicly traded, uh, if you don't want to call it a religion, let's call it an ideology. And now that the basic mechanics of scarcity and issuance and so on, you know, those, those are fundamental technological breakthroughs, right? But, but once those things now are kind of out there and they're productized, uh, such that anybody can issue a token or a coin, you can use that to measure the strength of any movement. And you can see how much people actually believe in it. Dogecoin is sort of like one of the very first kind of meme coin-like things like this. But I think you're going to see way more.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Nidig, the institutional-grade platform dedicated to building a more inclusive financial system through Bitcoin. To find out more about NYDIG and their mission to bring Bitcoin to all, go to nidigcom NLW. That's N Y-D-I-G forward slash N L W. So in some ways, I feel like part of the part of the political progressives issue is you know, so the, the way that you're framing this is they see the state as the first resort. And 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 in some ways, it's kind of a theory of change thing, right? It's like, what is the mechanism by which you think change can be applied in the way that you find fairest or most desirable, right? And the, the political progressive tends to take the view that without the power of the state, uh, the application of, of, of the fix will inherently flow to the already powerful or something, right? This is kind of a, a classic theory. And I think the thing that's interesting and why it's um you know i wonder to what extent they are actually better recognizing on some level the threat that 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 technology or or, or sort of the ne- i guess the network is a better way to put it these networks uh actually Uh, pose to the power of the state, be it in the context of specific crypto crypto asset networks, which we're now seeing, I think, you know, we're having, we are about, I think, to have a a grand national conversation about stable coins in the shadow banking system, which is wild, right? And it's going to be driven by political progressives who rightly see potentially it as a threat to their ability to apply, you know, modern monetary theory. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me to some extent that, you know, there is this emergent threat uh, and this power transition that you've identified, a new leviathan. And I wonder, to, like, it feels sometimes to me that the progressive political conversation, rather than asking how that can create a new mechanism to deliver the end goals that they achieve, just are are reading the the threat that it imposes to their theory of change itself.
0: The reason the network is, in a sense, a threat to the state. So those three, like, forces identified um oh now i remember how we got in it by the way we're talking about did it have to go this way so i'll come back to that point right right um i mean if you if you have a million people in one physical location that's estonia that's a state if you have a million people in a social network that's not considered to be anything that's just like a large twitter following but could it be more could it be something that has a sense of national consciousness could it be something where they've got a digital currency and a digital economy, perhaps a virtual reality? Now you start to actually have something where, you know, thanks to remote work, more of work can be done in the cloud. Maybe everybody can be pseudonymous, but they're checking in here just like you know they would check in um, to you know a, a video game every day. Uh, and now the state, the the land, starts to become a parameter, and the cloud starts to become primary. And uh, what that would mean is, a, is a, a flippening, the cloud flippening. In some sense, that's already happened in 2020. The cloud, thanks to remote, thanks to COVID and, and so on with lockdowns, you know the land is just a parameter and most of your life is now digital. Um, that's happened for a lot of tech people already. It's, it's like a lagging thing. Of course, there's folks who are still you know, offline for various reasons. In the same sense, you can open your laptop anywhere in the world and get onto Gmail, get onto Twitter, get onto this, get onto that, right? The land is a parameter, but the cloud is a constant. That's a new thing. And uh, if that happens um, and that and that extends and that happens more, the network is the constant, your login, that's your actual society, that's your economy, that's your people. And then the place you're actually living, well, okay, you know, when you're in Caesar's uh, realm, you know pay unto Caesar what is what is due but you have no emotional attachment it's like a hotel and so in that that's one of many different axes in which the network you know does challenge the state um, because it is possible to essentially build polities in the cloud that are like um, alternatives to the state now with that said I think that you get a Hegelian synthesis so you know I mentioned God's state and network is sort of like three pure things right but you can start making syntheses for example the pure state would be like the USSR in the 20th century um, just the untrammelled state they you know they they killed uh, priests they were against God and certainly the internet hadn't even been invented um, the USA in the 1900s was like God plus state you know if you look at the Marine Corps they were like you know for God and country right so that's like a god state hybrid. If you think of something like the Islamic State, that's actually like a God state network, like a triple hybrid, where basically you know the Islamic State, God, and state, and then they recruit from the internet. That's like a bad version. Um, if you think about like a pure network, well, that's like crypto or Bitcoin. Pure God would be just like a religion that didn't have any state power whatsoever. Um, you know, maybe something like Falun Gong or something like that. Um, I don't know that much about it, but, uh, you know, I, I do know that they certainly don't have state power, uh, or, or Judaism prior to Israel, right? Like, so that's like a pure religion. Um, actually, that's actually something that's like God plus network because you had an international network of people who were part of the same community, um, and wrote letters and so on to each other. And that helped lead eventually to the formation of Israel. And they believed in the same religion, um, but they didn't have a state. And um, then there's other versions. So, you know, we talked about the pure network, but one of the most interesting and one of the things I think about the most is a particular fusion I call the network state. And there's two ways of getting there. That's a fusion between essentially the technology, the internet and the physical state. One way of getting there is from below where the state fuses with the network. So that's happening with China most predominantly. That's a big, that's the exception that proves the it role. It's one humongous state that, has merged vertically with the network. It's sort of become this fusion of the land and the cloud. And they've got the, uh, they've got AI and they've got, you know, like blockchain government and, you know, they're they're rolling that on Beijing if you've seen that. Um, And they're using technology as a fundamental tool of policy. They're they're running their country in this fashion. Um, Estonia, Israel, Singapore, in different ways, are also network or becoming network states in this sense. Estonia is probably one of the furthest ahead where they run their country like a software company and they do so in a way that preserves liberal values and, you know, in in the sense of, you know, freedom and and what have you. Um, But then there's another model, which is not the state gaining the capabilities of the network, gaining the capabilities of a software company, of a software CEO, but the network gaining the capabilities of a state that's going from the cloud down to the land. And that's like a new form, which, um, I, you know, I, I think about a lot and I've got some writing that's coming out on that. Follow me on Twitter if you if you want to see more. Um, and the fundamental idea is, well, you start grouping large enough numbers of people online and you can start doing crowdfunding of territory. Um, you can essentially achieve consensus on the society you want to build in the cloud, then start materializing it on the earth. So it's entirely a consensual opt-in process. But I think that actually starts to lead to innovations and governance. And you know, any innovation is not necessarily always popular with incumbents, but sometimes there are smart incumbents who recognize the value of that innovation. So, um, so I do think that the, you know, I, I hate to put it pose it as the threat that the that the network poses to the state because that that phrases it as inherently confrontation or negative. But the reform. That the network will bring to the state, I think, is very important. And there's going to be some folks who may not be fond of that reform, often because they don't understand it. Um, and I think that's that's something how how I think about things will go. Some of how I think things will go.
1: Do you think that there will see as part of that transitional process different jurisdictions, particularly those that haven't necessarily been the global leaders in the past? Like speed up to leverage the fact that this change is is happening inevitable and but not necessarily uh, has no foregone conclusions about how it's going to go to try to compete and win devotions of new networks. I mean, again, I guess Estonia is kind of an example of that to some extent.
0: Absolutely, any country with an internet connection could make itself incredibly wealthy. By simply putting, assuming the government has enough control to make this happen, um, it's not like a failed state or something. Uh, by simply putting a line through some old regulation and saying entrepreneurs welcome, you know, hey, drones are legal here. Knock yourself out, right? Or they're fully legal within this zone. Go, go to it. Um, or you know that look, drones are you know a local thing. For a global thing, you'd say crypto is fully legal here. Whatever you want to do with DeFi, knock yourself out. You know, uh, or whatever you want to do with uh, this or that technology, life extension. You know, boom, go ahead, right? And uh, life extension being a very important one, maybe the most important one. And so, the the reason is that the uh, way cities used to be built was around rivers or coal mines or things like that, natural geographies. Um, you know, why particularly rivers? Why were they built around rivers or or oceans? You know, why is Manhattan where it is? Well, the ocean, the sea was the original peer-to-peer network, right? You're Portugal, and you can just go and send stuff directly to Brazil or to Macau, you know, and you don't have to go over land. You don't have to go through 15 other countries that can deny you passage. You can send your goods across the ocean. So the ocean was the original peer-to-peer network, which connected every port to every other port to first order. Of course, there's you know like getting through the Black Sea or whatever you you know the Caspian Straits you know Turkey is not not necessarily going to let you through but to first order you can you can get through and uh, so that's why it's so important to not be landlocked that's why you know for Russia for example a huge national security thing for them for many many years has been do they have warm water ports that's one of the reasons they you know wanted Crimea you know they've got like a warmer port, um, you know, that's why Vladivostok is very important to them. So like the geopolitics uh, ha- was, was critical, like having access to these ports. Um, but today, everybody's got a different kind of port, namely <laughs> the port on your computer. It's actually very well named, right? Um, and that port, uh, you know, the, 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 that lets you send traffic back and forth over the internet is a very different kind of port, but it's available everywhere. And so you might be landlocked, but you're not cloud locked. You, know, you are able to send and receive packets. And that actually radically improves the bargaining power of pretty much any country because um, you know, it doesn't need to be near natural resources anymore. Um, you know, even being near the ocean is fine, but now everybody's near the cloud. Um, you're one hop away. I mean, one thing we don't really think about too much is how shallow, in a particular sense, the internet is with basically 20 keystrokes, you know, the username and password, you can get into anybody's email or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Right? I mean, 2FA does prevent that, okay? But let's say if you're just doing username and password, the internet is incredibly shallow with just like a series of keystrokes, you could bring up a billion different people's accounts on one machine. It's really actually insane when you think about that. Like Google is like that. Just, you know, hit in a few keystrokes and you can go to anywhere. And it's like this it's actually insane. It's almost like a teleportation mechanism. It's like a library where, you know, the library, imagine the shelves moving in front of you with autocomplete as you hit enter, you know, it's like insane how shallow it is. Um, Rather than having to go and spend, you know, even 15 minutes to go to the library and get a book or whatever, there's like a depth of effort that's there. You can just boom, hit a few keys and have it come up. And so because of that, everybody has this port to the internet. Uh, Every country that wants to um, could attract entrepreneurs. And I think what just hasn't happened yet is sort of the collective bargaining effort to put the asks of the entrepreneurs on one side to like sort of solidify them, to get people behind a policy platform. And then to go and take that to all the countries of the world and see who and in states, you know, who's the taker for this because it doesn't have to be necessarily at a national level. So many governors who are quite powerful, um, many politicians in, in different countries. You sort of have like a two-sided marketplace of entrepreneurs and policymakers, and you bring the policy to them that you propose, and you have it back and forth. And the critical thing that makes this possible is mobility, because those founders, those entrepreneurs, those VCs, investors, engineers. Are immigrants? They're migrants. You know, they're willing to snap shut the laptop and open it up somewhere else. Uh, you know, once, it, you know, knock on wood, um, the vaccines are looking pretty good. If they're deployed and they're deployed at scale, if they work, which are all ifs right now, but looking good, knock on wood. Okay, then I think you know, in a year, a year and a half from now, you may see a lot of revenge travel. You know, like mm-hmm. this pent up demand. Everybody in lockdown. Boom! The golden age of digital nomadism dawns because right now we have this tension where, um, you know, the, the the virus has boosted both centralization and decentralization. You know, the states have printed tons of money, but crypto has gone through the roof. Lockdown means you can't go anywhere. Remote work means you can work from anywhere. Right? So it's like this rubber bandish kind of tension. If the vaccine actually works boom, everybody will want to travel everywhere and they can with um, you know, with, with the remote work, but governments will also restrict transit because they don't want to spread the virus. And so a lot of the you know, sort of um, vaccine-based... So, so I think that tourism, we'll see if tourism comes back. I don't, I'm not sure if they'll ever come back to the same level or not for a generation, maybe. We'll see. Um, it's possible. But I think permanent international relocation or semi-permanent, will become much, much, much more common. Where if you do need to do a two-week quarantine, well, you want to amortize that over a two-year stay. And you'll just go and work from a place.
1: It's another one of these areas where the, the last decade has shown lots of examples of, of almost previews of the future with this. Uh, you know, think about uh, startup programs in Chile, right? Startup Chile that literally got entrepreneurs to come down to do their version of Y Combinator. But instead of it being like really exclusive, it was basically anyone willing to do it, you know, and they gave a bunch of resources and all these sort of things. And you've obviously seen in the crypto industry, Malta and Puerto Rico and, you know, a variety of other places try to kind of create these hubs. And then you have just the generic side, you know, these remote work type things like like these fellowships where you go for a year and you do whatever, right? But these are all kind of like the early flirtations. And I think one of the pieces that, that uh, one of the things you're saying that I, I tend to agree with is that it's, it feels unlikely to me that the uh, burden and risk of the same way that we traveled before will be worth it to the same set of people. And so in that context, you have to imagine that these places that have had a fundamental demand destruction around Uh, around tourist revenue are going to be looking to attract a deeper form of revenue generation in the form of people actually being there paying taxes, you know, doing whatever it is that makes uh, that that makes sort of that that money shift. But it it, it does feel like, you know, we're potentially poised for a very different level of uh, international mobility. The question part of it is like you know uh, how how much is this simply a factor of enough people having enough interest and now ability to go work from anywhere that a place could plausibly attract them for two years versus there needing to be some fundamentally new set of infrastructure to actually you know relocate in a meaningful way
0: I think both uh, I think the infrastructure thing that's a pure tech question. Basically what you want is for it to be as easy to relocate as calling an Uber. And how do you get there? Well, maybe you make it such that, uh, you have, um, an inventory of all your possessions and you can just like get your clothes and all the other stuff on demand, but you just boom, hop into a new country and the whole room is set up exactly like you want, you know? Um, I think that's like like imagine hotel 2.0, you know, which is like personalized, uh, but it's like a residence and everything is set up that way. That's one way of doing it. You know, maybe, you know, people just have fewer possessions as you go from your bookshelf to your Kindle, for example, Um, but they're decentralized, right? So you have the private keys on your phone. So it's not like you don't have the property and it's all, you know, in the cloud. And I think that there's a lot of ways the technology can make it, the, the technology can make it cheaper and easier for um for people to internationally relocate beyond where we currently are actually we did teleport.org um you know a while back and there's nomad list uh and um these are things which allow international relocation and i think you're going to see much 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 more of that uh and you know nomad list is not my company or anything like that it's just by a guy i know uh, not, not even uh, know from the internet guy named peter levels but it's kind of an a compliment to Teleport.org, also a good company. Uh, we sold Teleport, you know, I co-founded that. We sold that to um, a relocation company several years ago. But I think both those companies are sort of ahead of their time in terms of digital nomadism. I think that's going to explode. And I think we can do way, way, way more in terms of assisting permanent international relocation.
1: I want to come back to, uh, I want to talk about Bitcoin and where we find this moment. Uh, you know, We kind of have gone very big, but you know, we're in the midst of uh, of this industry sort of uh, winning by hook and crook uh, a whole new set of devotion following, and certainly we've seen the prices rise. And so I want to maybe dig in with you, Like, what is this next bull run going to mean for Bitcoin and for the crypto industry as a whole?
0: So you know, I, I tweeted this a while back, Bitcoin at 10,000 is an industry, Bitcoin at 100,000 is a world power, and Bitcoin at a million is a global government just not the one that anybody expected. It's funny to put it that way. Um, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of people have thought about a global government in different ways. And essentially there's been sort of two factions, those people who are pro-freedom and don't want a global government. And those people who are, let's say, you know, they might phrase this pro-order or pro-state you know, who, who do want a global government. Um, but <laughs> Bitcoin at a million is like a pro-freedom global government, which seems like a, a paradoxical thing that neither, neither group really understands. And essentially, the reason it's like a pro-freedom global government is Bitcoin at a million becomes digital gold, truly digital gold, and it constrains states in the way that gold used to constrain states, which we can only really understand by reading history books and reading what um, you know those those periods were actually like. And um, what it basically meant was that you couldn't just, you know, the the, the century of total war, the twentieth century. Is in part a function of the fact that these states could mobilize millions of people to just go and shoot and kill each other, mobilize people to put people in gulags and concentration camps. You know, th- there, there's something where the failure mode of getting, yes, you can get lots of people to cooperate, then cooperate to kill lots of people and do very bad things, you know? And um, so instead the alternative here is something where there's a limit on state power. And governments don't limit themselves. You know that's like this fundamental issue of oh, limited government or whatever. Governments don't limit themselves. You know like the whole point of a government is its force. It's it's got a monopoly of force. So anybody who's in a territory where the government can shoot you fundamentally, you know, there's there's a sense in which you, you're not going to actually be able to limit it because it can shoot you. And of course, there's there's various social blocks that people put in there. A lot of people are very they don't like to to, to it's sort of like not thinking about what meat is. They don't want to think about what the government is. Meat is killing an animal, and the government is a gun. You know, that's what it is. It is a gun. You may argue it's good or bad at certain times, but it's a gun. And um, so, limiting the use of that gun by the people who the gun is pointed at, you know, or that is to say, the people who the gun is pointed at, don't really have the ability to limit the use of it. They may think they do. Um, and maybe they do in some levels where, you know, if, if it's actually going and attacking somebody, then, you know, it looks bad for them and so on. I'm not I'm not disputing that. There's some aspect of optics and PR and and whatnot. Someone has to pull the trigger, you know, when when the state is enforcing something. But I think it's more interesting to think about limiting it from outside with constraint, with exit, with other groups constraining the use of force, either implicitly or explicitly. And Bitcoin at a million means that you can't print very easily. Put another way, you know, a corporation issues fiat and um, that fiat is just called equity. And there's a limit to how much equity they can print. Um, you know, they may print equity in a new financing round or whatever, but if they dilute down existing investors too much, those existing investors either A, um, won't approve the round or B, if they can't, you know, exit, they may, uh, if they can't stop the dilution, they may just sell their stock for dollars. So they can, you know, um, they have that backup plan that if there's too much printing, too much dilution, they can, they can exit. And now that applies, if Bitcoin's at a million, that applies not just for uh, a company printing too much stock, it applies for a country printing too much fiat. So there's now a way to exit without counterparty risk for anybody worldwide that is like gold and that you possess it, but it's digital and that it's portable and, you know, it's got all those things. Now, of course, you know, there's all kinds of scalability things that would need to be solved for this, but I'm actually much more bullish on that. Now, if you're looking at, you know, have you seen WBTC? Have you followed that?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So WBTC is working and it's, it's like, it's not that complicated. It's just literally depositing, BTC with with somebody, and then you get WBTC tokens, and they're they're uh, you know on the Ethereum chain, uh, and then you can do stuff with them. And now any scalability you know things that come, you can you can do deal with that. And eventually, if you want to, you can redeem it, and that radically reduces the number of on chain transactions. And I think that's that's essentially what happens. What you might have is a company at the time of boot up, it pays, I don't know, in a few years maybe it pays. A thousand dollars a transaction for Bitcoin, which is not something you're gonna do very much, but it moves five million dollars of Bitcoin into something which, you know, then you do a wrapped BTC thing around it and you can do micropayments on it. So you you essentially work around the fact that this is a very um, high transaction value, high value blockchain by doing very infrequent transactions and then doing wrappers around that for different kinds of workloads, whether it's micropayments or Or other payments, or or so on, and I think that's one way in which BTC actually can achieve its goal of being digital gold. And there's a thousand different platforms where you can wrap BTC in different ways. Um, And that's, you know, I think that the more pragmatic BTC people will understand that that's a big victory condition for BTC. And then I think hopefully we'll understand, okay, all these other chains add value to BTC. BTC is a king of coins. and all the other folks are, in a sense, paying tribute because you can wrap it and use it, and so on and so forth. But it's not anti-BTC. The crypto economy is centered around it. But you don't have a crypto economy without those other chains that do other things, like giving freedom of speech via social networks, or or decentralized finance, or decentralized DNS, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a little bit off topic, but the point is, Bitcoin at a million, the next price run. Um, I mean, when does Bitcoin get to a million? It could be this run. It could be the next run. It might never get to a million. It might be a hundred something thousand between a hundred thousand million. I I have no position on where that actually levels out. Okay. So I'm not giving something like that, but I am saying that at a certain point, another 10 X means this is a very big deal. Another hundred X means it's one of the most powerful forces in the world. if not the most powerful force. And that'll be combated. There'll there'll be a lot of people who are going to push on whether it's actually decentralized enough You're going to see lots of different kinds of attacks on it. But I think at the end of the day, long term, there's enough cryptocurrency technology like, you know, ZK SNARKs and other kinds of things that something like Bitcoin will constrain states by 2050 or, or thereabouts. It's a long time period, but I think I think that's probably true.
1: Well, and this is interesting too because there's been so much conversation. It's like as this price has heated up and as sort of the macro folks have come into the space, there's been a lot more debate and discussion at least in the Twitter sphere on this idea of whether Bitcoin is inevitably going to be co-opted in some way by Wall Street or governments coming in.
0: Well, so have you seen that thing like you're not locked up in here with I'm not locked up in here with you, you're locked up in here with me. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a meme that um People did with BTC in late 2017 when all these people are like, Yeah, now Wall Street's gonna get in and short Bitcoin and so remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh and it, it used the uh the scene from Watchmen where you know the the skinny guy goes and beats the hell out of the prisoner who's who's gonna attack him. And so maybe that's that's what happens. I think essentially <laughs> the compromise that is that's being offered there, the quasi-truce is okay. You know, you're a crypto holder, you get to preserve your gains, but you don't have your freedom. Um, you don't have the ability to move your currency. You just get the, you know, a million fiat bucks or whatever it is. You can you can trade it in for that, but you can't move it around. Um, and I think actually it it is a, I shouldn't say smart, it's a clever truce because what it actually does is it undermines the long-term value of the thing itself. It just turns it into an investment. But that investment is based on the fact that it is actually free and so, um, you know, the investment may hover in mid air for a while. You know, there's various coins I don't believe in that have hovered in mid air for a very long time, but it really undercuts the long term value proposition of that currency. Um, I I think that that truce may be offered. I don't think it should be or will be taken for lots of reasons. The most important being there's no one person to take that truce. Um, the thing about BTC and with cryptocurrency is the the ledger. Is replic- It's not even the mining nodes or what have you, as important as they are, but the ledger itself is replicated on millions of computers at this point. It will. It, it's one of the most valuable things on earth. It'll probably, I shouldn't say never be deleted, but it's pretty hard to delete it. And so as such, any new chain that can get booted up, you can just say, all Bitcoiners, you get coins on this chain. Maybe it's 100% of the coins, maybe it's 50%, but you can import the ledger into a new chain. And so, um, and that may, chain may have security guarantees or decentralization guarantees or privacy guarantees or technologies we haven't invented yet. Um, and so the ledger will never die. And because the ledger never dies, I don't think digital currency will ever die. Uh, and so that's that's something where even if there's like a truce or a compromise or something like that, which says, hey, give you, know, you get money, but you lose your power or whatever, you lose your freedom, your ability to transact, your personal rights. Um, I don't think that'll actually stop this long-term. I think it would be a short-term thing, even if it's taken. I'm not sure who would take it, uh, or individuals might take it, but, but the system, I couldn't take it because the system isn't capable of, of accepting something. It's millions of individuals.
1: This is a slightly different topic, but I feel like it's connected in terms of, if nothing else, that sort of, uh, you know, germ of optimism in, in that that sort of contention, which is a tweet that you had uh, from, I guess, a couple months ago now, the, where you discuss the future is communist capital versus woke capital versus crypto capital. And it, it feels to me a little bit like what you're describing is the 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 sort of, uh, the you know, the preservation mechanism of crypto capital. But I'd love to, maybe we can kind of talk just for a minute about uh, what this, this sort of this versus setup that, that you have in mind here is.
0: So, what do I mean by that? Communist capital versus woke capital versus crypto capital. That's PRC versus MMT versus BTC, right? So, people's role go China versus modern monetary theory versus Bitcoin. And essentially, what we're seeing is in many ways, um, you know, like we're seeing this certainly in the US, but also um, within China, it's become more illiberal. That is to say, uh due to the fact that the internet has led to all of these new voices and, and so on, states have cracked down both the US and uh China by essentially pushing much more in the way of ideology. It's not really just policy, you know, it is in China it's policy, but in the US and China, it's ideology. For example, um there's a great graph which shows a number of mentions of Xi Jinping in you know, um, Chinese SEC filings. And it was basically nothing in like 2015 and it's just started going vertical. And now every single document in China has, or like a SEC filing has to talk about how this is boosting, you know, like like Xi Jinping thought, right? And a similar kind of thing happened in the US with uh, Paul Graham posted this graph where it showed that woke language at the New York Times has just gone vertical since 2013. And so if you think of this as, all right, well, if everybody can speak, let's brainwash them or push this ideology that means that what they speak is immaterial because they're still coordinated, right? If everybody can speak, everybody might have a different opinion. So we push this ideology that coordinates them, snaps them into line, cancels anybody who steps out of line. And so we can still have a coordinated polity, even in an internet age when anybody in theory can speak freely because they could decentralize and then we won't agree with each other and bicker endlessly. And so what these are, it's almost like an adaptive thing. It's, you know, if there's freedom of speech and every ideology can flourish, well, the ideology that gives arguments to knock down other people's freedom of speech is the one that actually is adaptive because you don't want to control them, but they want to control you. So they'll control you. You know what I mean? It's like, you may want not want to shoot this guy, but he wants to shoot you. Who gets shot? You, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they've got the gun. <laughs> um, and this is something that Paul Graham and I actually had a Twitter discussion on, which was, it was very counterintuitive that, um, or PG thought it was counterintuitive, and I agree it was counterintuitive, that uh, here, let me see if I can find this discussion. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, PG said, he quoted somebody, pretty wild that we transitioned to broadcast whatever is top of mind with zero friction. And... Any opinion that reflects value is not held by the most radical ten percent will ruin your career at the same time. You know, so you can broadcast whatever is top of mind, and any opinion that reflects value is not held by the most radical ten percent will ruin your career at the same time. And you know, what I said is it's three phases. It's number one, gain ability to broadcast whatever is top of mind with zero friction. Number two, the most radical ten percent also gain ability to broadcast what is top of mind for them, and what is top of mind for them is making it high friction for you to broadcast whatever is top of mind. So, <laughs> um, so the paradox of a free society, if it's really free, it may allow ideologies to flourish that want to stamp out that free society. And you know that's what PG replied. He's like, it's more bizarre phenomenon. Making speech easier ends up decreasing freedom of speech for the reasonable because it gives the unreasonable a way to attack them. Obvious in retrospect, but I wouldn't have predicted it. And so this is actually something where effectively society had evolved to an equilibrium where it had de-platformed the de-platformers. Mm-hmm. So it is not that you know deep platform. I mean, the like like a like a weapon or anything. You know, like a tool. Deplatforming is a tool, and uh, you don't want to platform Lenin. Uh, you don't want to platform Stalin or whatever. You know, these are like uh, or or Osama bin Laden. Those are people who are terrorist revolutionaries who are capable of, or, or you know, dictators who are who you know really are doing incitement to murder, right? Um, the issue, of course, is when you say you don't want to. Well, who makes that decision, and so on and so forth. And so the, the, there's a there's a seemingly recursive loop where the people who are pro freedom won't deplatform, and the people who are anti freedom will, and so they deplatform the people who are pro freedom. Okay, so that you can just work out the math on that. You know that that has a stable equilibrium, which is a non freedom equilibrium. And so I think that the solution to that is. Um, You start thinking of this not as moderation or platforming or what have you, but as community governance, because um, one of the big issues with Twitter, for example, is uh, some people think Twitter isn't um, moderating enough of the hostile comments, angry comments, uh, et cetera. And some people think it's censoring too much. And some people think both are true at the same time, and I'm actually in that camp where you know there's incredible hostility and hatred on Twitter, and there's a lot of censorship, and it's like it's like this you know worst of both worlds environment in many ways, um, and I think the, the reason for that is what people are really saying implicitly is they don't feel there's community governance over this thing. It's important enough that they want to say in it, but it is governed you know, by essentially people at Twitter HQ. And so you're trying to get them to do X or Y or Z, but it's not, there's no governance mechanism where the community can have a say, you know? And um, so an alternative is you start actually designing platforms that have community governance and community moderation. And so now, um, you know, you have like a coin or something like that, you have token voting. There's a thousand different models. I'm not saying any one of them works, but I do think crypto governance Will allow for lots of experiments with communities that have speech norms, have behavior norms, have you know, transaction norms or whatever that everybody in that community has mostly acceded to, and so there's an expectation of what is reasonable and what is unreasonable in that community. And you can exit if it's not pro freedom enough for you. So, with communist capital and woke capital, they have essentially evolved ideologies that have the in, in the case of woke capital, the decentralized. Censorship of speech. In the case of communist capital, the centr- centralized censorship of speech, and um, these three ideologies—communist uh, capital, world capital, crypto capital—you know what, what do I mean by these? Because at first, people didn't know what I meant by communist capital. Communist capital is the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. That's capitalism, but it's checked by the centralized power of the Chinese state. And you know, there's there's different ways of thinking about that. First order is, oh, of course it's communist. They've got the hammer and sickle. It's in the name. You know, of course, they're communists. They call themselves communists, etc. Right. Um, and what's funny is that's the people who say, of course, they're communists. There's three groups. First, those are Chinese themselves. Second, there is the far left in the US, so-called tankies, you know, or what have you, you know, it's a derogatory term, but these are the people who, you know, think China's communist, and they believe in China because it's communist. And there's people on the right in the US who think China is communist because they hate China for being communist. So <laughs> there's actually three groups of people who want to say, well, yeah, of course they're communist. Then you have second order, which is the sort of sophisticated internationalist who's like, look, dude, you know, they're not really communists. They're capitalists. They're lots of free trade. There are lots of billionaires. They're just kind of saying it. They're not really doing it, you know? Okay. Then you have third order, which is uh, as of 2020, they kind of are. And the reason is because. Um, no company can become large enough to do something that the government doesn't want it to do. Like the way to think about the CCP is it's like agent Smith from the matrix, your chair can morph into an agent if you're doing something they don't like, you know? And uh, so it is something where it is absolutely constrained to capitalism. It's capitalism constrained by this ideology. Um, and it, which of something, which at the, at the root level, the state, um, reserves a right to do whatever it wants, and they come up with some legal justification for that. You can see Jack Ma with the Alibaba thing; like they shut down this this ant financial IPO, the largest IPO in history, because he made some comments that were critical of regulators. You know, and so um, so that's communist capital. Now, it is it's not comp- you know I've, I've pointed out the bad aspects. It's not completely dysfunctional as much as people would like it to be. So, in many ways, it is maybe the best executing large country in the world. Because, you know, with COVID-19, it was first at bat and China really innovated. You know, they they are not the China of 1950. The China of 2020 is not the China of 1950, just like the the America of 2020 is not the America of 1950. All these people had this mental model of the US of 2020 being like, oh, we'll do the right thing after we do everything else, you know, th- that, that it's like a... It's like a 70-year-old guy thinking they can walk over to the bench press and just knock out 225 for reps. You know, <laughs> it's something where they haven't, they haven't been working out recently, so they're not just going to be able to just do that, that they haven't been doing. Whereas China can still and does innovate in the physical world. So, for example, they could just build a hospital in a few days. That's a subroutine for them. Why was that even a possibility? Why was that even a menu option? Because they'd been building buildings in days for years. You know, I've been posting stuff like that, right? They can build a, a subway station, a train station, rather, in like nine hours. Um, you can't build that in the U.S. in nine months, right? Um, Cal train station or whatever is just constantly under construction. It's it's like, um, it's orders of magnitude, 100X, 1000X, depending on how you count it, uh, in, in terms of a difference of speed. And so, so they are, in many ways, I mean, they really are in the future, you know, they're using drones for, um, taking people's temperatures. Uh, there's WeChat. There's um, there's drone delivery at your hotel room where people would send up a drone with food, so it's sanitary. They would have you know contactless surfaces for everything, so you never hit a button. You know hygienic entry. They're they're pushing all kinds of innovations in the physical world that people in the US are just completely unaware of. So. It is. It would be nice if this was a totally dysfunctional ideology. It's not. It 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 does work in many ways. It, you may think it's bad, but it is absolutely driving technology. It's generating power, and it is at least within the Pacific Rim area fairly attractive to a number of folks. You know, uh, they, they've essentially adopted versions of the Chinese model in different ways, and with Belt and Road, uh, you know, which very few Americans know about. Do you, do you know what the Belt and Road is?
1: Yeah, sure. The 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 program by which China extends its uh, economic influence and political influence through economics.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think an interesting question would be over the last four years, how many NYT or WSJ front page headlines mentioned Belt and Road? <sighs> it's got to be a small handful at most. It's it's a small handful, right? Like this is my intuition. Um, you know, I would I would be surprised. I I may be wrong. Okay. Uh, so, so that's why, like, you know, we'd have to look at the analysis. But I'd be very surprised if it's more than the Trump or Facebook or Putin or whatever headlines. You know, there's essentially like a real ignorance of what is going on in important parts of the world. I mean, educated people frequently I talk to them and they don't know what the Belt and Road is. Right? Which is a huge thing in China. Now, you may think it's stupid or whatever. At least you should know what China is doing, what their internal models are. So, point being that. A lot of people want to try to write off China and be like, "Oh, you know, their demography—they're going to crash." This a whole Zihan model, which I think is basically cope, and you know, I, I, Zihan has some good stuff in his book. Z e i h a n, you know, the excellent super brothers. Mm-hmm.
1: He's been on the show, yeah.
0: You know, he has he has some good stuff. Uh, you know, in the sense of, um, I think, uh, what parts do I agree with? Um, I do think that it's interesting to think about shale oil and its impact on the u.s you know in the long term that basically uh the the entire middle east is sort of the centralizing force in world affairs i think it's not just shale oil though but it's also electric vehicles and so on you know uh, less dependence on oil from the middle east means that you know countries especially with nuclear power and so on uh, electrical cars electric cars it's a maybe people can go their own way to a greater extent if you've got your own oil oil deposits and so on. So I think shale oil is a piece of it. I think it is true that energy independence is interesting, though shale oil is only feasible at very high price points. And um, you know, as all the marginal demand for air travel and so on has crashed, oil also crashed. You know, there's a period where people would actually pay you to hold oil barrels earlier this year, if you remember that, right? Mm-hmm. So that part, I think he, there's something there, just to be generous. But I think so much else of the rest is is just very wrong. Where um, you know, demography is why China is going to crash and so on. Robotics are coming online. You know, if you look at Vicarious.com, you look at um, you, you, you look at Boston Dynamics, you look at uh, all the stuff that is happening in the space. It's happening.jpg you know, it's one of those things that's just gonna go vertical. And so just thinking about it narrowly in terms of, oh, we've got lots of people and, you know, therefore, you know, demography, lots of young people and therefore demography is gonna be a big threat for them. No, it's just just not how it's gonna work. Um, technology is actually very important. Okay, so that's communist capital. That's a quick sketch of them. I'm, uh, I don't think that they're just gonna fail of their own accord. Um, I think that they're actually gonna be a very serious thing. What they lack, their biggest weakness is they are not convincing outside of China. They can't make their case in the English language. Their propaganda internationally is simply not very good. It's possible they could fix that, but you know, uh, I mean, TikTok is interesting because it is the first thing that is a consumer app built in China that is better than anything any American or English-speaking person has done. Better, just in the sense of, you know, it's it's playing in a away game, right? It's not playing a home game. They don't speak you know, they're not, they don't understand American culture as fluently as someone who was born in the US. I mean, just think about trying to make an app, forget about the great firewall. Okay. But, you know, to make an app that goes viral in China, is not that easy to do. It's a highly competitive market. You need to understand all these Chinese cultural things like red envelopes or whatever. That's a huge part of having it go viral. Um, all those cultural things, you're playing an away game and TikTok is still super viral, right? So it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that China gets better at kind of exporting soft power, but they're not good at it right now. Okay, number two, woke capital. What's woke capital? That's the ideology of much of modern America. Um, you know, there's an article by Dude Hat in the New York Times on this. But basically, you know, it's capitalism that enables cancel culture, decentralized censorship, American empire. It's drone strike, drone strike democracy. You know, it is um, Raytheon's diversity program or whatever, right? And, um, it is something where it's interesting because whether one is on the right or the left or the center, you can sense that there's something inauthentic here. Mm -hmm. You can say, oh, like I, I agree with the representativeness, but I feel that this is inauthentic that they're just saying, um, you know, this while like selling bombs or whatever, um, you know, or uh, you're, you're on the right and you're like, well, I agree with a strong national defense. I agree with capitalism, but I don't like this. But there there's something there that feels inauthentic to people. Um, yet this is also in its own way, a bizarre hybrid, like communist capital. Woe capital is something that would have been inconceivable to somebody in the 80s, um, you know, where the diversity advocates and the Raytheon people were on different sides. Now they're, they're the same. Um, but there is a logic to it, which is, the wokeness gives a moral justification for the bombs, um, and you know, like essentially, you, you sort of start off by uh, like repeating this sort of catechism, and it's like you know, do the cross before eating dinner, and once you've kind of said the right woke words, any use of state power is justifiable, um, any use of any any deplatforming, any arbitrary corporate action is justifiable with the right woke words. It's very cynical. But this is actually you know, something where in other times and places, you know, people would give religious justifications for very nasty things. Um, and so that's, I think, what people are sensing there in its own way is similar to sort of Xi Jinping thought. The big difference is it's decentralized. The big difference is there's no one you know, agency that is saying, you know, be woke. It is, it is something which has evolved uh, because in the US, you don't have, I mean, the First Amendment uh, means that the, the government cannot constrain speech. So instead, what happened was a decentralized censorship regime evolved. And then the solution to that, I think, is going to be decentralized censorship resistance. So then third is um, crypto capital. So this is, I think, is the hope of the rest of the world. It's stateless capitalism. It's capitalism without corporations. It's decentralized censorship resistance. It's principled nonviolence. And it's the youngest, but may yet prove the strongest. So that's crypto. Yeah, so crypto capital, the thing is, um, this is the dark horse. People kind of might laugh—not people in crypto, but people outside might laugh at thinking it's a competitor to the U.S. or the PRC. But the fundamental thing is, it's a form—it's um, stateless capitalism. It doesn't require you to bend to the U.S. or the Chinese Empire. It allows individuals to rise. It is genuine equality on the basis of equations. You know, it is mathematical trust. Um, you may not trust the American or the Chinese legal system, but you can trust a smart contract because you can diligence it, it's math. And this is, I think, the best of Western values, yet it's also something that's very acceptable to many Chinese people because it's like the second choice for many Americans and many Chinese and the first choice first choice for many people who are neither American nor Chinese, um, which is like 80% of the world. So in a sense, imagine if in the 20th century, you know, the so-called non-aligned movement, that was neither U.S. nor USSR. Um, if that was actually the most powerful movement worldwide, I think history doesn't repeat, but it might rhyme. If the Non-Aligned Movement, the decentralized movement, is stronger than these two states, and eventually brings everybody to peace rather than endless Cold War, you know, uh, that could be very interesting.
1: This is a a, a really fascinating conversation around um, what the what the future of not just sort of economic construction looks like, but society construction looks like, which brings us all the way back to sort of the point that we started with around, you know, we almost accidentally set up a dialectic right at the beginning between sort of like a new sort of technology-driven bottoms-up governance and human organization, as opposed to the calcified sort of older models and, and how they're trying to change. I guess you used a term right at the beginning, uh, a, a sort of a technical progressive or a technological progressive, as opposed to a political progressive, and uh, and sort of your, uh, you Know, mental affiliation with that, given that mindset you know as you look out across twenty twenty one what is and maybe this is by way of wrapping up this great conversation what is uh, the the you know a, a source or a wellspring of optimism for the technical progressive
0: well, I mean we're getting rocket ships and brain machine interface and gpt three and you know, like fast vaccines, and we're starting to actually see some awesome things happening. And so it's the duty of the technological progressive to pursue the great acceleration, neither the great stagnation nor the great reset. I mean, even the concept of the great reset, I hate the term because it's like going back to the beginning or something like that. I don't want to go back to zero. I want to go to infinity.
1: Golden age fallacy.
0: Exactly. Right. And so, you know, the great acceleration is what we want to pursue, which is, um, Faster on physical technologies, faster on life extension, faster on crypto, faster on AI, faster on brain machine interface, and go for transhumanism. Go for immutable money, infinite frontier, eternal life. And what that means is basically, you know, um, infinite frontier is space, immutable money is crypto, eternal life is life extension and, you know, actually start setting out the superlatives as goals, and we restore the arrow of civilization. And I, I think that's going to be very powerful.
1: Love it. All right. Well, we're going to have to check back in in a few months on how uh, eternal life and immutable money is going. But for now, Elizabeth, I appreciate you taking so much time today. This is a really, really fun conversation. And uh, let's do it again. Okay,
0: cool. Thank you.